everyone, and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. So in this episode, we speak to Dr. Richard Cuthbert of Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada from Swift Current, Saskatchewan. Cuthbert works as a plant breeder in specifically wheat. Along with this, he works in various projects, uh, exploring fusarium and sprouting, uh, and he's been part of the development of many wheat varieties, including AAC Connery, Viewfield, Redberry, Starbuck, Wheatland, and many more. So this season has been very challenging. Um, I mean, we started off dry, especially in Alberta, um, and then the rain started in the northwest part of the province um, and, and just continued. We also had low heat units um, and ended up having a delayed harvest because of early um, snowfall that came in and we're seeing a lot of issues with falling number. Um, and because of this, I wanted to reach out to, to Richard and chat with him a little bit about falling number, um, what it looks like. So in this podcast, um, we chatted about the challenges of falling number in Western Canada, what falling number actually is, um, how it becomes a problem, um, how it's measured, and what role it really plays in the breeding program. So Cuthbert goes into detail about how breeders look at falling number during the process uh, and, and how it relates to sprouting um, and how you can use that information on your farm. Um, Cuthbert is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to plant breeding and falling number, so I hope you find value from this discussion. So I am here with Richard Cuthbert, um, uh, well, I guess Dr. Richard Cuthbert with AFC um, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada out of Swift Current in Saskatoon. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Richard. No problem. Thank you for the invitation. So, I mean, I'm looking at uh, at your rap sheet of, of what you've been working on and some of the varieties uh, that you work with out of out of um, Swift Current there and um, AAC Connery, Concord, Viewfield, Redberry, Goodwin, um, and you also work on uh, fusarium and sprouting research in the past and and I believe you were part of mapping the wheat genome. So um, you do quite a bit of work at a Swift Current. Yes, yeah, I was quite fortunate to get involved with the Swift Current. Uh, breeding program. Um, I assumed the program from Dr. Ron DePau, so there was a lot of research that was uh, lined up I was able to jump into, and the team I work with is uh, pretty great. So so maybe before we get too far into it, and I, I kind of did a little bit of an introduction there, but um, maybe talk a little bit about um, how you got to where you are and, and what your current research is and, and what you're looking to towards in the future, just so our, our audience can get an idea of what you work on. Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Winnipeg. I uh, always had an interest in engineering and taking things apart and putting them back together. And I, I really did think that engineering was the path for me. My my sisters are a little bit older than me, and they, they had an interest in plants from working in my father's greenhouse and uh, kind of growing up watching my sisters go through ag research, and they got involved with the canola breeding program at the University of Manitoba, and uh, I saw there was an opportunity for a summer job there, which involved a lot of uh, weeding of plots, <laughs> but uh, I, I got a feel for what uh, breeding was 
and what what could be done with it and how much plants were an ultimate kind of puzzle that you can take apart and put back together. So I kind of got uh, bitten for the breeding bug there and uh, continued on with uh, with my studies in agriculture and uh, pursuit of Master's of Science and a PhD in wheat breeding. And right after my PhD, got started in wheat breeding with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. So I've been very fortunate there. Um, and wheat was kind of a logical choice to, to get into in, in plant breeding. It's grown on quite large acreage in Canada. It's quite important to the economy and to farmers. And it is, in my opinion, the ultimate plant puzzle. Its genome is massive, and there's a lot of challenges facing production. And maybe um, talking about the wheat genome, just so everyone can get an idea, because I was actually reading about this um, not too long ago, but the comparable size of, of say, the wheat genome to, to other um, crops that may, we maybe grow um, in North America. Is it, is it, could we draw some comparisons there? Yeah, a couple of the numbers are escaping me right now, but uh, I always go to the human genome. As the human genome was the first to be sequenced and fully mapped, and of course there's a lot more funds avail- available for human research, but the wheat genome is uh, five times larger in DNA uh, content than the human genome, so it's quite a bit bigger. And as it increases in size, the complexity of the assembly of that genome once, because you only sequence little bits and pieces of it, and then you try to put it together, it's like taking a large book like Gone with the Wind, shredding it, and then trying to reassemble it from from the words that are left in the little pieces of paper. So that's, that's basically what was done with the wheat genome and the human genome before it. What further complicated it for wheat is bread wheat that we know today about 10,000 years ago was a hybridization of different uh, genomes. So there's three distinct genomes and hexaploid wheat from three ancestors that came together to give us what we know as modern bread wheat today. So that um, duplication across the three genomes as well as the absolute size of the genome is just uh, it's it's such a challenge to work with. Yeah, when I uh, when I looked into that, see, just just reading of the size of the wheat genome just just gave me that much more of a um, respect for the amount of work that that goes into to developing some of those research projects. So, um, but what we're here to talk about today is 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 falling number, and this year has been no doubt a challenge. For producers in Western Canada, um, I mean, it's been labeled the harvest from hell, um, making 2016 look like uh, maybe a walk in the park to some. Uh, but I mean, we we started off with with dry conditions. I mean, May we pretty much didn't get any rain um, across the prairies except um, that southwest part of Alberta, uh, and then it started to rain, um, and especially in central and, and northwestern part of Alberta, and and then it it didn't stop. On top of that, we had low heat units, um, so we had a delayed crop that maybe had some wet feet, and then we got into early snow, um, which is delayed harvest, and there's still millions of dollars worth of crop out on the field, um, and we're dealing with quality issues, and one of the big quality issues that we're seeing is a decrease in falling number. Um, so. Maybe to give uh, people who aren't as familiar with falling number um, a little bit of a background, could you could you maybe explain what falling number is um, and what it's measuring? I agree that is it has been a terrible harvest uh, in the breeding program. We've had a lot of struggles uh, 
at our sites across Western Canada getting grain samples in and processed. And we do feel the pain of uh, farmers, uh, not to the extent of the value that's still in the field. So we do we do share that frustration in some ways. Uh, falling number is a proxy for sprouting. So uh, when we're developing wheat varieties, um, we want that variety to do a couple things. You want the grain harvested from it to, do, to be desirable to the end user for whether it's a cake, pasta, cookies, uh, what have you, whatever that end user wants to use it for, and you want to produce a high-quality product. The wheat plant is really only concerned about getting grain that will produce another wheat plant, and many wheat plants, right? It wants to survive. So what we try to do in breeding is um, um, have some sprouting tolerance so that certain conditions have to be met before that seed will sprout and grow another plant. So we call that sprouting resistance. So with uh, the fall that we've had and the rains through the fall and cycling of cold, damp days um, and drying in there, um, what can occur is varieties that are more susceptible to sprouting have less dormancy requirement will start to sprout they'll start to grow a plant from that seed. And that's troublesome because as soon as that seed takes on water, it starts to mobilize enzymes to break down the starch in the kernel. That will give an energy source to that developing embryo and that new plant. So when that occurs and those enzymes start to cleave or break up those starch chains, and starch is just a bunch of glucose molecules or sugar molecules put together, uh, they become simple sugars, and when that seed is milled and used for an end product like bread, you won't get the same end product, and often you'll get a burning that occurs because now you have a simple sugar. Um, so if you were to take a marshmallow and toast it over a fire, it will burn, right? And that's the, the sugar burning off as energy. So that will that is what happens in those end products. They won't be as desirable. You won't get the same low-volume the cookie can burn, those things can occur. So the falling number, to get back to the original question, uh, the falling number is a way to measure those enzyme activities. So uh, the primary is alpha amylase. Uh, the falling number is, a, is done in one major way, uh, the Hagberg falling number. Uh, Wheat kernels are ground for flour, and they're put with water in a test tube and mixed. And they're put in a, a specialized machine with a warm water bath, and a rod's placed in that test tube to mix it up. Um, that occurs for 60 seconds, so the heat from the water bath kind of cooks it, kind of like you're making gravy or something like that uh, when you put uh, flour into gravy or drippings from a roast and you heat it. It will thicken. The same sort of thing happens with uh, in that Hagberg falling number test in that test tube. So the rod will mix while the solution is being warmed for 60 seconds, and then the rod will be left at the top of the test tube, and then the machine will measure how fast that rod falls to the bottom of the tube. How many seconds is the falling number? How long it takes for that rod to get to the bottom of the tube? So. Uh, ideally, if you have good starch in the grain, it will take a long time for that rod to fall through the 
through the material on the tube to the bottom. If you don't and the starch is broken down, that rod will fall very quickly through the tube because there isn't that intricate starch network uh, to, to resist it from falling. So that kind of answer that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you end up with that, that low falling number that ends up being a challenge to, to end users um, for creating quality product. I guess my follow-up question to that would be, um, is this a test that's done under lab conditions or is this something maybe like you said could be done in a kitchen um, the same way that you do gravy like how how specific do we need to be with the amount of product that we're using the temperature and and all of these um, conditions that we need to 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 do this test is this something that just anyone could do or does this take a lot of uh, specificity in making sure that it's done properly i would say especially for breeding purposes when we're looking for very specific uh, differences in varieties or on the or breeding lines, uh, you would need high specificity. There is very detailed protocols in place, and the equipment's reasonably expensive. Typically, we'd grain the grind the grain samples and keep them in a humid environment to equalize them, and uh, that needs to be done days in advance prior to doing the actual test. Uh, the actual test, uh, there is. Uh, specialized equipment to do this uh, that you can purchase from lab supply companies and it's usually done in a controlled lab environment. Uh, I'm not aware of it being done anywhere else really. Um, I think there may be uh, something that we use in quality is near-infrared reflectance, so NIR. I think there may be some calibrations out there that uh, some people try to estimate falling number based on NIR. I don't have any real hands-on experience with that, but it's kind of hearsay. I've never seen it myself. So those, uh, it would be a much faster way to do, and it could be done in less ideal conditions, but the real Hagberg falling number test would be done in controlled lab conditions. So I, I guess you, you discussed a little bit about how falling number is, is related to sprouting. Um, so would you expect falling number response of varieties to, to align pretty closely to what you see with sprouting resistance to varieties? Like, is that, is that a line? Um, I think you can have higher falling number material when it hasn't sprouted. Uh, once you've had sprouting occur, then there should be significant differences between uh, a non-sprouted versus a sprouted sample. Um, but yeah, that, not a great answer, but yeah, if if something if something's growing in ideal conditions, um, that line, even though it's poor for sprouting when it's harvested, can have a high, a reasonable falling number. I won't say high, but a reasonable falling number. If you have something that has sprouted, the falling number should decrease, I believe, in proportion, but we would, I would, I would check that with a seed physiologist. Um, essentially, we need to have um, some falling number occur, some falling number decrease occur before sprouting is going to happen, and, and, and how that response happens is, is, could be variety specific. Yes, yeah, yeah, we do know that there are differences in falling number between varieties to begin with. In the breeding process, um, we don't tend to look at falling number until we get into advanced stages of trialing, typically on lines that are inbred. It is a more expensive test to do, and in breeding, we're always 
we tend to go with the cheapest to the most expensive tests. That's the way the, the attrition happens in our program typically. Uh, we wouldn't want to be spending $200 on a test on 10,000 lines at an early generation when we could do it on 200 lines later on. Um, and we do see line differences and variety differences. Um, in the registration system, um, polling number is a primary trait. So for entry to a market class, it has to meet minimums for falling number to get into that class. The green that's typically used is a composite of sites that are grown for the registration trial. So it's typically up to 12 sites per registration test per year for three years. So we do measure falling number at advanced lines and then in the registration trial for three years and it has to meet at least the checks or exceed. And, and and what value would that be to meet check? Would it be 350? Would it be 400? What does that number typically look like? It's not an abs. We can't say an absolute number. Lines will change their their biological organisms. They're, unfortunately, as much as we'd like to make them fit in a box, they don't always. They tend to move around. So our checks right now for Canada Western Red Spring that the line potential registration line needs to be um, checked against is Glen, Carberry, and AAC Viewfield. Those have been agreed upon in Western Canada as the checks for CWRS. So in my experience, looking at this registration trial over the last nine years, uh, Glen will tend to be the lowest. Carberry will tend to be a little bit higher than Glen, even though it's Probably, I think it's sprouting resistance in the sea guides is rated as a fair, and then view fields will be usually better than that. Uh, they take a mean of those, and then they have deviations from the mean where a line is assessed against. So if it's better than the mean, great. That's really good. That's what we're looking for. If it's equivalent, that's okay. It still gets through. If you get too low from the st standard deviation that's set from that check mean, that's when things get flagged and get turned down for registration. All right, we're going to pause here and go to a quick commercial break, but we will be right back. Taking place at the iconic Banff Springs Hotel, Alberta farmers are invited to spend two days learning and networking at the Prairie Cereal Summit on December 11th and 12th. Hosted by the Alberta Wheat and Barley Commissions, this industry-favoured event is filled with engaging speakers, including the Honourable Stockwell Day, a signature pub tour in downtown Banff, and a reception followed by a delicious banquet dinner. Register today by visiting albertabarley.com and join us in the heart of the Rockies. Okay. So everything that is out and available right now has passed these standardized tests to make sure that it's at least at check. Yes, for three years with a composite of grain grown in Western Canada over those three years. So there's been at least it's been checked at least three times in that registration trial. So I guess this begs the question then if if we're I mean we're dealing with some challenging seasons in the northwest of Alberta and, and we're getting wet conditions, maybe that's not what's occurring all all the time in, in Saskatoon or Saskatchewan. Um, but then if we're looking at it over the past three years, then would the averages decrease and, and the standard set decrease as well if we're doing those those tests across across Western Canada? Yes, that's something that doesn't really get done in registration and, and maybe should or maybe should be done post-registration is um, falling number after sprouting. 
and that's difficult to do because the conditions around sprouting can change in the actual field condition. And it is it gets to be extremely labor intensive in collection of material and in the testing. So what can happen is you could have a line go through that has a high falling number. That typically means a low L family's activity will resist uh, quite a quite a bit of of alpha amylase activity, but then if it's exposed to extreme conditions in the fall in the field uh, that will meet sprouting requirements, and the line is poor for sprouting, you can have an issue, and that's what we're kind of seeing this year. What we do now, uh, and has been done for quite a while, I'd have to look back exactly how long, but the, the sprouting ratings that are in the seed guides, we do them at Swift Current. They're done in what's called a length of dormancy period test. So lines go into it for three years, and we will collect uh, heads for sprouting testing at two time points. They're collected at physiological maturity. They are dried and then kept at minus 20 until we phenotype and or phenotyping is a fancy word for checking the sprouting and actually looking at what happens when you give those conditions so we'll put the bundles of heads from each variety or line into a specialized cabinet that has what we call a ferris wheel and trays and the ferris wheel will turn in the cabinet and we have uh, sprinklers inside that will spray water on the plants at determined intervals over a few days and then we'll come back and we have checks in there that we know that are very bad, bad, good and very good and we'll assess the lines against them, the heads for sprouting and then we'll also thresh them and look at the kernel sprouted and that is how the sprouting rating was given in the seed guides. So things that are very good, um, great, they have a much better resistance to sprouting than something that would be rated poor or very poor. So ideally, if you're in an area and we don't know on the prairies how each year is going to go, you would be selecting varieties that are good or very good. But that can be a challenge. So that that sprouting test, you said it doesn't involve also checking the falling number. It would be very interesting to see what the falling number of some of those varieties would be after running through that that um, sprouting test because it, it I always I always come back to this question of um, if you put varieties side by side and you put them in conditions for sprouting and you you have both of them dropping their falling number because of alpha amylase production will one of those varieties actually start display sprouting um, on the outside of the kernel before the other one does because it takes longer for that falling number decrease to actually trigger a sprouting response. Mm -hmm. Yes, and if we were to do uh, falling numbers on this material, we would need to do quite a bit, quite a a few more heads per line because we're only doing 10 at two different time points of maturity. so we and we would need at least seven grams of flour, ground flour, to do the falling number test. So we would have to increase things a little bit, and that would be a little bit of a challenge, uh, resource-wise and labor-wise. But it is it is possible, and may have been done in the past. And again, there is a lot of history in what's been done with pre-harvest sprouting uh, breeding in Canada. Um, 
I guess something that we haven't talked about really in the breeding process is is what we do to bring in sprouting resistance. And there is quite a long history of that in Canada. Uh, one of the things that was done is a line called RL4137 was developed, and it was a primary source for pre-harvest sprouting resistance in Canada Western Red Spring. And it was used as a backbone um, in the CWS genealogy chart that it needs to be updated. I'm working on that. But if you go back in that, you'll see it becomes a backbone in the genealogy, and it was used quite extensively for um, sprouting resistance. Uh, where things have become a bit of a challenge in recent years is incorporating things like fusarium head blight into our CWS background. So we go to novel germplasm sources and we start to cross and select and we're selecting for yield, grain protein, ideal height, lodging resistance, acceptable maturity, get into the end use quality traits which are quite restrictive for CWRS and then the disease resistances as well, the fusarium head blight resistance, leaf spots, or sorry, leaf rust, stem rust, stripe rust, common bunt, and loose mutt and leaf spots to a lesser extent now, and trying to maintain pre-harvest sprouting resistance and getting all those other traits together can be a challenge. So uh, what we see when we bring in novel sources of resistance, especially for fusarium head blight, something else slides. And in some cases, um, these harder-to-measure traits like pre-harvest sprouting that are quite labor-intensive, quite costly to do in breeding, uh, tend to slide a little bit. So, they, so they, I was, they I, become, I've seen, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say they become a little bit less of, of a priority because we're, we're working to make sure we, we have a plant that's going to survive the growing conditions and actually produce quality grain um, to get to the elevator. But then those end use qualities can sometimes suffer because of that sounds like. Yes, that's right. And the end use qualities around CWRS is restrictive. We have quite a tight window for the primary uh, traits. Uh, so falling number, um, I actually had it open here. I was trying to uh, see if I can find them here. <laughs> falling number, flower yield, graph absorption, which is quite important for end users, and then extensograph Rmax. So those are the primary traits. And each one of those I think there's five, four or five. Grain protein should be there too, I believe. Yep, protein. Um, there's five, and each one of those is a different test, and they're all generally expensive to do. So um, it's a challenge. Um, a lot of work has been done on pre-harvest sprouting, and like one of, one of the questions that comes up is why don't you use molecular markers? You have the wheat genome sequence, you know, just, just use markers as another as a as a way to look at it, but a lot of work has been done in mapping pre-harvest sprouting resistance. It's very complex. It's not one gene. It's not just a couple genes. It's many genes across the genome. And uh, in bread wheat, while well, we said it was very large, there's roughly 120,000 genes in the genome of hexaploid spring bread wheat. Is falling number something that's currently being worked on? Is this, is this something that we're currently trying to, to um, 
provide better lines for or is this kind of we we want to keep the status quo of where we at or where we're at i would say falling number wise uh from a breeding perspective you want to meet where you're uh at least where the minimums are or exceed them for cwrs um i wouldn't say it is the highest priority in cwrs breeding as typically we've been uh pretty good for our resistance in 2019 and i think 2016 would be the next in recent memory of a bad fall um other than that we haven't had a lot of issues with it to my knowledge but that would be a a a very good question for the green commission if they're able to answer it they'll have the harvest uh, sample program and they'll be seeing more data across the prairies but the good thing about actual field-based wheat breeding is when we do these falling number measurements in our what we would call our a test and then our b test and then three years of registration testing they've had five falling number measurements for that line before registration and we are in the exact same conditions that farmers are facing every year so this isn't done in the lab this is done in the field and this is real world so it is being worked on when we choose parents we're not trying to give away this pre-harvest sprouting in the cross we want to maintain that level of resistance which will maintain higher falling numbers and in general we've done reasonably well i can show you material that we get in every year from uh, we call them introductions or uh, materials that are given to us from international collaborators they're horrific for sprouting resistance um, I can provide some pictures of those if you like. There, um, you put them in the sprouting chamber for a couple of days, and they come out looking like—I uh, mean, they're fully sprouted kernels. Like, yeah, you'd have to see it to believe it. So, so the standard that we're at right now with our varieties, would you say, is is, is pretty high already? Yes, yeah, and I think we've seen a really atypical year. Um, of course, we can do better in breeding. It just takes more lines and more testing to bring all those traits together but the lines that are in the seed guide um, generally are pretty darn good they've passed a lot of registration testing requirements for merit and they do meet at least the minimums and many exceed so in general if you're an area of high sprouting potential and I would be choosing varieties that are good or very good for sprouting resistance and that will help maintain the high falling number all right it is commercial break time but we will be right back did you know that canada exports 75 percent of the wheat we grow as an exporting country our trade relationships are a top priority in order for us to survive and thrive with that in mind cereals canada the canadian international grains institute and the canadian grain commission are proud to promote the quality of canadian wheat through our 2019 new crop missions. This important outreach will travel to 17 cities on five continents through January 2020. These missions bring together farmers, exporters, technical experts, and regulators, and puts them face-to-face with our key customers. Through a series of meetings and seminars, we will foster a deeper level of understanding between our customers and the Canadian wheat value chain. Farmers from the Alberta Wheat Commission will be along for the ride to promote our wheat on the world stage and 
provide their valuable perspective. After all, their presence is critical to providing value to Canadian farmers and helping to develop and maintain vital international markets. For more information on the 2019 New Crop Missions, visit CanadianWheat.ca. For the producers out there, is there is there a way of visually looking at uh, a, a kernel and saying the falling number here has decreased? Um, is it is it the same as looking at a, at a sprouted kernel? I mean, I, I would assume if you're looking at a kernel and it's sprouted, the falling number has decreased. But there's there's some decrease in falling number even before that visual. So so is there any determinant that you can um, use? To, to say that yes, the falling number is decreased or not? I would say in short, no. It would be obvious if you see that the germ end of the kernel has a has a sprout on it. If it's uh, if it's growing from what you would normally see in a sound kernel, you can bet that the falling number is lower. But in general, no. You would need to do the test. That said, if the variety has been harvested reasonably normally. It has a good sprouting resistance rating. I would be, uh, I would be interested to see what. Well, the falling number shouldn't be impacted that much. Uh, it should maintain its class, its classification within the marketing system. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it, it I mean, it, it, I guess that's um, where the question comes in. Is is. Um, you know, how am I supposed to know if my falling number has gone down if you can't do anything visual with it? And, and we're, we're relying on a test that requires um, lab-based conditions to make sure that we're getting good responses. And um, it's just, it, it obviously creates some confusion for producers because they're, they're, when, when we're used to everything being based on a visual um, and now we're looking at something that is... Um, a, a spec and needs to go through a lab test and um, it's causing some challenges at the elevator, um, that question comes up is, is can I look at my kernel and, and determine that? Um, and then I guess the follow-up question to that is um, if I have a sprouted kernel or, or a, um, a grain lot with a, a sprouted kernels in it, can I assume that the falling number is going to be poor um, or are there conditions where I can see a bit of sprouting, but but my falling number maybe isn't below 250 or, or 300? It's a, it's a good question. If you do see sprouting, I would tend to say the falling number is impacted. What the actual number is is difficult to say without actually testing. I wouldn't hazard a guess without looking. Um, and using absolute numbers uh, tends to be pretty pretty challenging as we know that uh, varieties, we call it genotype by environment. So the, the genotype or the variety, and depending on the environment, the environment can be different regions of the prairies, different fields, uh, miles apart, even over years. Uh, we know that varieties aren't perfect all the time and things can fluctuate. Uh, it's a biological organism and it, it will change. But um, Typically, going through the registration system that we have, lines are selected to be uh, what we call reliable performance, so generally high-performing and stable across environments. So I would say if it's been assigned to a market class, a lot of work has gone into getting it into that market class, and it should maintain that market class if the conditions are reasonable. If they're really, really extreme, Again, the wheat plant wants to create another plant. It doesn't care about the cake or the 
loaf of bread that we want to make, so things can change. But without an equivalent check to compare against what we would consider normal for CWRS, it's hard to use an absolute number because it will change. So producers in growing in the CWRS class, everything that falls into that class, grown under good conditions, will meet the falling number that we have. It's when we get into those poor fall conditions. Um, and if producers are in those areas where fall conditions are challenging, what seems like every year, in some areas this is the fourth year in a row, that's when they should be really looking at those um, very good and good spreading resistant varieties is what I'm hearing. Yes, and I would say average fall conditions. I mean, uh, the registration tests are done under uh, the same conditions like this year. Lines that are coming up for registration this February, they've just gone through the fall that we've all experienced, getting them out of the field in a timely way. Some of them were impacted, and that will show in the falling numbers, I suspect. So it'll be interesting to see what the data looks like this year. Looking back to some of the wetter years, uh, like 2016, again, a lot of the material that's come through in recent years for registration experienced that. So um, uh, we will see lower falling numbers. They will be called. They won't go to registration. They will, they'll be kicked out of the system. That's the strength of our system. And we are getting the better material coming through to farmers' fields. Um, yeah, I, I, I've seen much, much worse material. and, and I, there is room for improvement in CWRS, but in general, CWRS is quite unique globally. Awesome. Well, um, I, I mean, we've been chatting here for 35 minutes, and I, I do appreciate your time, Richard. Um, I feel like um, we, t we covered a lot of bases here when it comes to falling number. Is there anything that we, may, we didn't talk about that you think is worth mentioning when it comes to falling number and, and production in Western Canada? No, I don't, I don't think so. Not specifically. Um, there's a lot of pressure generally in wheat breeding, I would say, to streamline registration and make it uh, more predictable. I think in general it is. I think most breeders would agree that it is. Um, and this merit testing that's in place is to try and prevent any wrecks for farmers down the road. So I think it is important that a lot of these things be maintained and there's probably areas that they could be actually enhanced. but. That tends to be, uh, we don't generally like to add testing, but um, I think it is an important factor and 2019 does highlight that the importance of this work. Absolutely, it does. Well, again, Richard, thank you. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and uh, I'm sure we'll chat with you soon. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Alright everyone, thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. I want to remind producers and agronomists that if falling number is a consistent issue on your farm or farms, um, head over to the Alberta Wheat and Barley websites uh, and look for the most recent Growing Point newsletter. Um, this is going to have information on how to better manage your crop if it does have a low falling number and how to mitigate issues in the future. Um, so head over there and look for that information um, and it should help you uh, 
it should provide you with steps to help mitigate your falling number issue in the future. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, take a second to rate us and review the podcast and share it with your friends. Um, This helps us grow and get our message out there. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up on our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. We'll see you next time.